We'll turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 8. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 8. So I'll read this to you now. It says there that um, deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. These men must also be first tested. Let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be the husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that's in Christ Jesus. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Well, church, let's waste no time and jump right into the scripture. As you can tell by our reading this morning, today's sermon begins with Paul's instruction to Timothy in the appointment of deacons within the church. Now, over the last two weeks, we've looked at the role of elders within our church community. Now we're looking at the position of qualified deacons. So what exactly is a deacon? Well, in the Greek, it refers to one who serves. Literally, it means one who renders service to another. So, you know, in one word, I would call it a helper. A deacon is a helper. Now, while we know what the word means, and it does, what's interesting is that nowhere in 1 Timothy, or the rest of the New Testament for that matter, is there any detailed description of the job uh, details or the list of tasks they performed that they were to help in. Now, the fact that in verse 8, they were not to be fond of sordid gain, which is another way of saying not to be greedy, suggests responsibility for handling money within the church, especially in circumstances where they would give to the poor and distribute it amongst the poor brothers and sisters. But outside of that, the text in the Bible is pretty slim in terms of its, uh, where we can go. But probably the best example of the way in which deacons helped in the leadership of the church um, is found in Acts 6. And when we look at Acts 6, it's pretty safe to say that the role and function of a deacon was to assist the elders in exercising oversight in the church. They were to share in the leadership of the church, but not in teaching and preaching of the word, not in the teaching and preaching of the word, but in the carrying out of administrative tasks. Now, why do I say not in the teaching and preaching of the word? Because that's the one noticeable difference between the character traits in deacons and in elders. In, el- in the eldership, they had to be able to teach. That was the key characteristic for them. Deacons have no such quality or qualification. Again, not that they couldn't have the ability to teach, or they, you know, but they, it wasn't their requirement or their responsibility within the church to do so. So let me give you the context of Acts chapter 6, and I will show you a PowerPoint on that in a second. But in Acts chapter 6, the church is growing rapidly. 
In fact, in Acts chapter 2, it says that 3,000 people were added to the church and gave their lives to Jesus Christ in one day. In Acts chapter 4, it says, by then there was 5,000 people who had become Christians. And by Acts chapter 6, it says that the word of God kept spreading in numbers uh, increasingly so greatly that, uh, sorry, the word of God, the word of God kept spreading and numbers were increasing greatly in Jerusalem. So if you take the, the 5,000 by Acts chapter 4, and, and it talks here in Acts chapter 6 about the numbers spreading so greatly in Jerusalem, there's probably an estimation of somewhere upwards around 10,000 people, 10,000 people in Jerusalem who had given their lives to the Lord in a few short years. What this did then, church, was create a need. It created a need, and that was the need for a widow's ministry, a widow's ministry. Now, the problem was, was simply this. There were two categories of widows in Jerusalem at the time, and let's read it that now. It says, oh, I'm going to have to move your faces off the screen here. <laughs> it says, now at this time, um, the numbers were increasing. While the, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now, the Hellenistic uh, widows, or the Hellenistic Jews who were widows, uh, were widows that were, or women who were Jewish that were born outside of Jerusalem. They were born outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel. They lived in a Greek culture, but they had come for Pentecost. Um, or they, well, they actually, let me rephrase that. They'd moved, obviously, back to uh, Israel, into Jerusalem, and were living there, and were part of the church. And so they were seen as a second-class type of Jew because of their Greek uh, upbringing and being born outside of Palestine. The Hebrew widows, of course, were native to Israel and were seen as sort of like the first-class authentic Jewish women. So there was a division that occurred amongst them, clearly in the fact that the widows who couldn't take care of themselves were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So this is, this is important in terms of what was going on there. So they had to come up with a solution in order to deal with this. So the twelve, which were the disciples, the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Again, this is important because the twelve recognized that their job was to was to teach the word of God and to and to and to be uh, responsible for prayer, and they didn't want to do administrative tasks such as taking care of the widows because that would just take too much of their time, and so they put in charge of this task different people, uh, seven men in particular, to take care of the administrative tasks. And then, what was the result of this? The result of being so uh, smart in terms of letting the elders do their job with the word of God and prayer and pointing, appointing others for administrative tasks was that the word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. 
So the result of letting the elders do their job was a revival within the church. And people came to Christ in, in droves. Now it's interesting that the Acts church was so big that they had to have a widow's list. Because in Ephesus, we're going to come to this later, what did they have? They also had a, a widow's list. And so um, I'm guessing there that the deacons were responsible in taking care of some of the things going on in Ephesus. Now, although Genesis House doesn't have an official deacon list in our, or deacons in our church, um, we do have many in our church that serve alongside the leadership and carry out deacon-like tasks. And I'm grateful to those of you who do so. Uh, just so you know, the reason why we don't have official positions for deacons is because of the size of our church. Yeah, we're too small to need an official um, official uh, position for that. But I remember when I first started the church plant, I mean, it, there was no necessi necessity for it anyways, um, especially in the beginning um, when there was like really uh, only a few of us existing in the church. At that time, I had to wear uh, multiple hats and do different things. And nothing um, was more aggravating to me, and still is to this day, than doing administration. It's not uh, my, exactly my favorite thing to do in my job. But as we've grown and grown and grown, I've been able to... Uh, you've stepped up and you've helped me in the administration of, of certain tasks that normally I used to do in the beginning years. And I'm super thankful for you in your, in your service and deacon-like ministries, because it's allowed me to do my primary role and taken a huge burden off of me. And I just want to give some of you thanks now. Uh, I, I mean, I want to thank Evie, who organizes all the children's ministry, all the children's nursery stuff. I think of Abilene, who does all the food scheduling and helps and set up and take down every Sunday. Stephanie, who organizes all the music, puts the practices together, most recently has been uh, um, helping out in setting up of the Zoom meetings and things like that helping me get that going. Think of Laurel, who's also been involved in setting up the Zoom meetings. And over the past seven years, church, I've called on her often to do the odd thing here and there for me, from PowerPoints to slideshows to proofreading things I've written. And I especially think of the ladies' ministry that she runs. Her husband, Pat, too, who's also been helpful. And you may not, you won't know this, but just recently he completed all the child protection policy plan that we had to have in place for nursery. That's a huge administrative task that I just didn't want to do or didn't have the time to do. I think of Laura, who's also like Laurel and that I've called on, he on her frequently and, and odds and ends for administrative things in the church. Uh, most recently helping with the directory that we've been doing and handling like the YouTube channels for the weekly words of encouragement. She's been very uh, helpful over seven years. We have Kevin who helps in the editing and uploading of all the sermons and helps in various ways in all the tech, technological side of the church. And again, that's he's saved me like tons and tons of hours of work so I could do my job. I have Callie, again, just like Laura and Laura for seven years have done a tremendous amount of things for, for, for me and the spiritual leadership. She helps in the take down and set up a food every week. Uh, she did all the paperwork for the charitable status we received. For the government, that was a huge amount of work, and that was one of the least favorite things I've ever done in Genesis House in terms of administration. She did like virtually all of that. Uh, her husband Darcy, who also weekly uh, had helps in the setup and takedown 
of um, of the uh, you know the the worship stuff and and is really faithful in getting there early to 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 help me get all that going and uh, I've been very appreciative of that and Sheldon used to do that for us and uh, Sheldon if you're on as well we thank you for your for your service for that full year when we're before you left for Japan. Uh, Shelly Barcelo, who helps out weekly with Abilene and Callie and, and whatnot in the kitchen and does a tremendous amount of setup and takedown. Roy, who recently uh, just joined the church, uh, he's already stepped up and he's taking uh, initiative in like uh, helping us with the directory. And, uh, and last but not least, my wife, um, Janice, has done so much and there's hardly a week goes by in the seven years that she hasn't had her, her hand in something administrative within the church and I couldn't do it without her. And, uh, and if I've missed any of you, I apologize because um, many of you have served in, in, in other ways and at different times. But again, you can see the deacon-like tasks. Imagine all of that falling on my shoulders, <laughs> all of that stuff. And even with Jeff and Roger and Stuart now in, in the process of eldership, even with all them involved, it'd be impossible to get all those things done. So again, we're super thankful for those of you who do deacon-like ministries. Now, like I said before, while these are the types of administrative tasks necessary to make Genesis House function, there's no detailed list ever given in the Bible in terms of what deacons were to do in Paul's day. See, you see, Paul's emphasis in choosing deacons was much like that of eldership. The emphasis was not on role, not on role, but on one's character. Character was key. Now, no doubt, again, this was in response to the crisis in Ephesus. Uh, the leadership in Ephesus was corrupt and had a bad reputation inside and outside the church, and they're bringing the church into disrepute. So Paul's solution to restore the church was to put mature believers in place and men and women who reflected the very opposite characteristics of the false leadership that were there. And hence why the traits you see here are similar to that of eldership. For example, in verse 8, they're to be dignified. Uh, in verse 8, they're also not to be addicted to wine. In verse 11, they're to be temperate. In verse 12, they're to be the husband of one wife and be able to manage their household and children. So again, we see a, like, a very similar list here. Now, because the list is so identical, I'm not going to spend any time in going through the qualifications again, because I feel that would be redundant. That'd be redundant to the sermon that uh, I gave two weeks ago and Stuart gave last week. But there is one key observation that is worth discussing here that we can't let go. And that's found in verse 10. In verse 10, read that with me, church. It says, these men must also first be tested then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. So they first have to be tested before they can serve. That's a principle here that we learn from Paul. Now, Paul's vague on the details of the testing. He doesn't tell us anything about it, really. But he does tell us one key thing. And that was the purpose of the testing was to give time to determine one's character. To determine one's character. You can pick this up by the words beyond reproach. He says, these men also must be first tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. So the testing period is to find out, to give a, it's to give a time of analysis to one's character. In other words, they could only go into leadership once they had proven 
and they'd been seen to be blameless or to be above reproach. Now, this of course would have required a certain time period. How long? We don't know. But I'm going to suppose that it depended from person to person. Now, why would this be so important? Why so important? Well, this would parallel a teaching found in 1 Timothy 5.22. And here, Paul warns, warns uh, Timothy about what would happen if we're too quick to put our, our hand on the place of elders and put them into position too quickly. And I want to read you this from, from uh, 5.22. Oh, maybe I don't have it there. Hold on. There, there it is. Okay. He says, Never be in a hurry about appointing a church leader. Do not share in the sins of others. Remember, the sins of some people are obvious, leading them to certain judgment. But there are others whose sins will not be revealed until later. You see the principle here? Never be in a hurry, because there are others whose sins will not be revealed until later. What Paul's saying is this. You need to be slow in appointing people into leadership positions because a lot of people uh, uh, at first when you meet them are charismatic. They present well. They know how to hide their garbage. But they may have things deep-rooted inside them. But, if you, and so, um, but that takes time. Uh, as you bump shoulders with them and you see them in different situations such as like a, a conflict or uh, how they handle disagreements and theological conversations or about whose opinions and preferences are right or wrong, they start to reveal who they truly are. At first, they present really well, but over time, as you do life with them, they start to show and become evident of what they're truly made of. But here's the problem. If you appoint them right away and put them in leadership because you have a need, a desperate need to be fulfilled, or they, 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 they're very uh, flattering and they may be charismatic, it's often too late once they've been put in place. And here's a, there's a principle because it's, it is far easier to place someone in leadership than to remove them, <laughs> right? Hard to get someone out once they're in, but that, so that's a, that's a true statement no matter what um, field of life we're in, but especially the church. But there's another reason we're to um, appoint slowly, not just because it gives time to evaluate character, but because of the onus on the person who appoints. This is, in, this is a very uh, a powerful text here. Look at the, look at, I'll read it again, highlighting different words. Never be in a hurry about appointing a church leader. Do not share in the sins of others. Here's the principle. The person who often is put in leadership that you find out has a poor character or is not qualified um, often gets the blame. The person looks, we often look at that person and go, man, like they're just not holding up their weight. But what Paul's saying is here, actually the person who appointed them is at fault. Because if you've, if you've appointed them, you shared in their sins. You, you're responsible in, for very much of, of them being in that place. So if they bring the church down or cause disunity, it's not just that person at fault. It's you as the person who appointed them that's held responsible for that as well. And this is a really important uh, principle. So it's important for church health then that we take our time putting leaders in place and we don't be in a rush just because there's a need or because they impress us initially with their character. This is very important. Now, the necessity for qualified leadership. 
comes to its head in 14 and 15. Paul gets to the meat of why he's written this letter. He says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to, concert, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the support of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Paul here, church, uses two images and metaphors to describe his church. First, he defines the church as a family, as a family. Where do we get this? Notice he says here that we, he wrote these things in terms of how to appoint leadership and whatnot so that we know how to conduct ourselves in the household of God. The key word is household. Where have we seen that word before? In the elders list. In verse 5, it says, If a man does not know how to manage his household, how will he take care of the church of God? So in that context, it's about a father leading a home. Look in the deacons list in verse 12. He must be the husband of one wife, the good ma managers of the children, and their own households. Again, in the, the word household is to do with family language. So elders, family language, household. Deacons, family language, household. And now we have how to conduct ourselves in the household of God. The, the, the church is a family. It's a family, and God is the Father. God is our Father. This is important. Remember when Jesus is asked, how do we pray? His disciples say, how do we pray? And Jesus doesn't say, our judge who's in heaven. Never says that. He says, our Father who's in heaven. Now what's incredible about this is, this is not a biological father, like it would be for deacons and elders. It's a spiritual father. A spiritual father and as we're reconciled to, to him to God through the blood of Jesus Christ we enter into Jesus into God's family so it's a spiritual relationship and what's important here is the Bible never describes a church as a building the church whenever it's the church in Scripture is wherever believers are gathered wherever believers are gathered so it's a really important to think of that. And so if we if we if we're there's four or five of us on the lawn and we're having a Bible study, the church is there. We don't have to be in our pack in the our pack center to be in the church. The church is the people. I want to show you a beautiful PowerPoint of, of what this actually looks like, and hopefully this changes your understanding of church. This is the church. This is the, these are all people who have given their lives to Jesus Christ, have entered into a spiritual, uh, through, uh, yeah, have entered into a relationship with God through Jesus' blood on the cross. All these people have surrendered their life to Christ and have entered into God's family with Him as the Father. So the church is not the building, the church is the people. God indwells in us and we are part of His family. And this is a beautiful picture, too, to think about. Because I know for me, I think part of the reason why I don't miss my biological family as much as I, I, uh, as I do is not because I don't love them. It's because I have a family with you. Many of you um, I'm very close to and have great relationships with and trust and can share my, my deep feelings with. I don't have the longings for my biological family because I have my church family. And what's important about this is that um, many of you in, the, in your walks of life and mine would never be friends normally if we weren't Christians. 
I mean, we don't have the same interests. We aren't in the same stages of life. Uh, we come from different uh, uh, walks of uh, different paths and so on, different hobbies, everything. So we'd have no commonalities. But because we've all given our lives to Jesus Christ and have surrendered our lives to him, we have the commonality of the Christian faith and the Holy Spirit that indwells within us. And so for that reason, we're united and we have close relationships that normally wouldn't be the case. And so this is a beautiful thing to think of, about the churches being the family of God. The second illustration is that of the temple. He says here, he says, uh, he talks about the household of God, which is the church of the living God and the pillar and support of the truth. Now, this, we can see the temple reference in the pillars and support of the truth. Temples in, in, uh, back then, of course, were designed with pillars and foundation stones. That was the architectural design of how temples were built. And I want to show you a temple that is uh, from Sicily. Uh, I found this on Google. You can see this is obviously like, like ancient because it's, it's falling apart, but it's still in pretty good structure. You can see the pillars with the foundation stones below. And you can see that the pillars allowed for the roof to be put on the, t the, t the, the, um, the temple building. That's how temples were built. But here in verse 15, what's key is that Paul says that we are the church. We are the church. So not we are the church. And the context especially is this, the leadership. This is still in the context of qualified leadership. And we as a church as the qualified leadership are the pillars and support. And we have one critical role to play. And that's we are to uphold the truth of God's word. The critical role of the church as a pillars and support is to uphold the word of God, to, to main, maintain its truth. Think of now the word of God being the roof. If we're, if the, if we're the pillars and support, the truth is the roof of the temple. And this is, a, this is incredible. And I found a really neat uh, PowerPoint to, uh, picture on Google to give an illustration of this. Right? We see the ground in the foundation stones. We are the pillars, especially the leadership, the qualified leadership in place. And we uphold the truth of God's word, which is the roof. Well, let me give you a visual of what happens to God's family if we don't put qualified leaders in place that uphold the truth of God the way God intended. This is what happens. This is what happens. The truth crumbles. These pillars represent people that don't uphold the truth of the Word of God. Notice what's missing in this picture. Notice what's missing. There's no roof. It's not possible for a roof to be held there because the, the pillars are disintegrated. I was reminded of this, you know, um, about uh, a couple months ago. I went to a funeral in Lethbridge. It was at a Mormon church. I'd never been to a Mormon church, but the person who passed away uh, was my best friend from high school, his his daughter. And uh, she was only 19. And I went to the church in support of the family. What was very fascinating there is if you were to, if you, from an outsider looking in, if you were to look at the building and look at RPAC, you'd see a very similar structure. 
If you looked inside, you'd see a gathering of people. So again, they both are congregations. There's a, both a fellowship, so they would look very similar. During that service, though, uh, church, um, the guy who gave the funeral quoted a, a, approximately 20 different scriptures, 20 different scriptures from the Bible, and I knew them all. I'd, I'd heard them all, read them all, taught them virtually all of them as well. Do you know that not once did he quote anything in context? And every single scripture he used wrongly. Every, oh, like he, he was either teaching heresy or just had no idea what the scripture had in terms of its context. And it reminded me when I was studying this this morning, what's going or the, over the week, what's going on there? They have unqualified leadership in place. People that don't know the Lord and don't know the scriptures. So they appear like a family on the outside looking in, but they're not. Because they have not personally come to know Jesus Christ. They have not come to know Jesus Christ the way Paul intended with the truths that he intended. And he, remember the context, there's false teachers in Ephesus. The same type of thing going on. Heresy. Uh, they're not teaching the, the, about who Jesus is in terms of his nature, this true nature and why he'd come and his purpose for his life. And so Paul closes in verse 16 by reminding the church of the truth concerning Jesus. He says here in 16, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. So what does this mean? I uh, want to give you this caveat, this footnote. When I went to study these uh, verses, uh, I th a lot of them to me were clear in terms of what was being spoken about. But as a, as a Bible teacher and who takes my uh, role seriously, I always listen to other uh, commentators and pastors who I trust in the Word of God and who I would consider mentors to me. What was fascinating, church, was I read or listened to six different people. Six different people. Not one of them had the exact, not one of them came to the identical conclusion in all six verses. Not one. <laughs> now, yes, some shared commonalities, but if you sat under those six leaders, you'd get six different interpretations of what was being said here. So I come to you with uh, fear and trepidation, and uh, I'm going to give you what I believe is being proclaimed here. If you disagree with me, I have no problem with that. I will not uh, worry one bit because you'll probably align with one of the other pastors or commentators I read. And so I'm happy to receive correction if you think I've gone wrong. But I'm also responsible for teaching you what I believe is what he's, Paul is actually getting to. And so here I come to you now with what I think is being said regarding the truth concerning Jesus Christ. Number one, line number one. This is our reference. Well, let me just back up and say this, though. It's a common confession. What I love about that church is clearly in those days, in the first century, this was something that they had memorized. The church across probably uh, the, the, the Greco-Roman world knew this confession. Um, this is something that uh, had been made up and people could memorize as part of uh, understanding the truth of God. And somehow along the way, this got lost because this is not a common confession in our church um, uh, the way we understand it. 
uh, I know some of you came up with like more liturgical backgrounds, had the Apostles' Creed and things like that. But here, this is a common confession, probably a hymn. It was probably sung as well and came, came with lyrics, uh, came with a, a melody that accompanied it. But so it's kind of cool, though, that they had a common confession that summarized the, the nature and purpose of Christ, his coming to the earth and his, his ascension back to heaven. So let's just go through these now. So again, line one, a reference to the incarnation. This is the fact that uh, he who was revealed in the flesh. This is the fact that God took on human form in the body and life of Jesus Christ and was willing to live among us. Now, of course, the purpose of his coming was to die a humiliating death on the cross in order to save humanity from the from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. So he became human. He was willing to humiliate himself by coming from from going from God, coming taking on flesh, becoming a man to die on the cross to save us from from our sins. Was vindicated in the spirit. Line two, I believe this is a reference to his resurrection, his resurrection. Even though he suffered in the flesh and died a humiliating death, uh, this death couldn't hold him. He was, he was raised victorious in the power of the Holy Spirit. And of course, the resurrection church is central to Christianity. If there's no resurrection, Christianity does not exist. It doesn't exist. If Christ stayed in the grave and never was raised from the dead, you and I would never be reconciled to God. Because we'd have nobody, we have no advocate to, to, to atone for our sins. And I've done sermons on this before, so I'm not going to get into it in huge uh, detail now. But without the resurrection, there's no such thing as Christianity. It, this, is the key, this is the key to Christianity. Third, the third line, he was seen by angels. I believe this is a reference to witness being a, in a witness, and this is where all the disagreement occurred between the six men who I listened to and wrote. They, they, all, dis- they all couldn't come to conclusion what this actually meant. But let me just give you the, the places where angels did see Jesus Christ. They saw, they saw him before he became a man. They were with him in the heavenly realms. They, they knew who he was as, in the heavenly realms before he was incarnated. They knew him at this stage. They are also present at his birth. They appeared to the shepherds and said, The Messiah has been born to you today. They were there during his temptation and ministered to him while the devil was trying to get him to, to uh, fall. They were present at his tomb and told uh, the women that he'd been risen. And they saw his a final ascension into heaven. They saw his a final ascension into heaven in Acts chapter 1. So the, 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 they, they, these angels, they knew Jesus as both God and man. They knew him as deity, and they knew him as, as humanity. And you know what? What do the cults do? All the cults, they deny the deity of Christ. They deny it. That's what makes it a cult. And yet, in Christianity, we believe that God was fully man and fully human. Or that Jesus was fully man and fully human. Fourth, proclamation. He was proclaimed among the nations... To me, this is the universal offer of salvation to all people. Remember, Christianity began in Israel. It began in Israel with the Jews. 
but it moved quickly outside of Israel's borders into the Gentile world. And Paul, of course, who wrote Timothy, was the main catalyst in bringing the gospel to the Gentile people, the non-Jewish people. You and I are the Gentile people. So his, his, uh, his incarnation, his resurrection, and the witness that the angels saw him in these stages were all proclaimed to the nations, the message of Christ. His purpose for coming and the purpose of the resurrection. He was believed on in the world, line 5. This is, an, this is a reference to salvation. If you, if you believe the message of Jesus, you're saved. You receive eternal life. You don't fall under God's judgment. You come to know the Lord. You're, you're, you enter into God's household. You become part of His family. You start to participate in supporting the truth of His word. If you believe you have genuine faith, you have eternal life and you are saved. And again, in the world, in that context, was the Greco-Roman world, the world around the Mediterranean. But in our context, the gospel has now been proclaimed from continent to continent, province to province, and nation to nation. And so now the world has heard the message of Jesus Christ. And you and I are recipients of that blessing. And finally, in line six, his ascension. He was taken up into glory. He was taken up into glory. This is in Acts chapter 1, 40 days after he'd been crucified. He appears to his disciples and Luke records there that he was taken up. Exact words, he was taken up. So it ends, it begins with his, his, uh, his, his uh, um, descending from, from heaven to earth, taking on flesh to be crucified. And it ends with him raising back to where he came from, back to heaven. He ends with, it ends with triumph. It ends with a climax, a glorious climax, and he takes his rightful reign as king. So in summary, here's what I think it's really saying, if I would try to do it quickly. Here's the, here's the, here's the confession, that, that God became man. He died for our sin. He was resurrected, defeating the power of sin, so that those of us who believe in him can receive forgiveness and have eternal life. And this message has been, has been proclaimed uh, to all the world, to all the world, and that one day, for those of us who put our faith in him, we will enjoy being with him one day as we're taking up, we're, we've been taken up to join them in his kingdom. Again, this is a beautiful confession, but it's the heartbeat of the Christian gospel. And that's the truth, the pillar. This is the truth that we are to stand up for. This is the truth that we are to be pillars and foundations to. Next week, he starts with a but. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits. And again, uh, I believe this confession was written because of the false teachers who were denying these very aspects of these six lines in this confession. And we'll get to that next week. So what do we learn from in terms of lessons? What do we take away from this church? Lesson one, the purpose of the church is to uphold the truth of God's word. We're to be pillars. We're to be foundation stones. Those uh, pictures of the temple, uh, you know, uh, for me were powerful. I'm a visual person. I'm a visual learner. 
I don't learn by reading very often or by hearing. I learn by, by seeing. That gives me a whole new perspective of what the job of the church is, and especially those of us in leadership. We're to uphold the truth of God's word. We're not to add to it. We're not to take away from it. We're not to skip certain portions of it just because we are afraid of the content within it. If that was true, I would have never preached on the role of ministry, uh, the, the women in ministry roles from 1 Timothy chapter uh, 2 a few weeks ago. That was the most nerve-wracking sermon I've ever had to do in my seven years. I would uh, have never done that if I was, uh, you know, if truth wasn't important. We're not to skip over things we don't like or things that may be controversial. Um, that's, that's, that's what we're to do. We're to uphold the truth, no matter how uncomfortable it may be in terms of topics. And, uh, you know, Jesus nor the prophets uh, didn't die because they watered the truth down. <laughs> they died because they didn't waver from it. They, they spoke it for what it was. And again, this is key for Genesis House. If we're going to uh, be a living church, the church of the living God, we're going to always have to uphold the truth of God's word. And again, we learn from this passage, God's our dad. And that's what our dad wants. Lesson two. In order for the truth to be upheld, it's imperative that qualified leadership be put in place. This is why he says, I'm writing to you so that you will know how to conduct yourself in the household of God. The context is from chapters 1 all the way to 3 has been what? Stop false teachers, put good ones in place. That's the message of the first three chapters. It's imperative that for truth to be upheld, leadership is qualified. The elders have to have good character. They have to be able to be able to teach. And Stuart did a fantastic job of explaining what able to teach actually means. Deacons, as well, have to focus on their character. They have to be solid in their character. Hosea 4.9 says, like people like priests. Like people like priests. In other words, the people follow the leadership. And if you have strong leadership, the people will follow. If you don't, it can become disastrous. And that's exactly what happened in Ephesus. The church started to crumble, even though they were planted by the greatest church planter in the history of the world, Paul. They had a great start. Paul was their church planter. But after he left, look how quickly things crumbled. After It was only three years after he was there and things crumbled because of lack of strong leadership. And finally, lesson three, to ensure godly leadership is in place, one should not appoint anyone too quickly and take the time to evaluate one's character. One should not be appointed one should not appoint anyone too quickly and take the time to evaluate one's character. You know, often due to needs or someone's charisma or their past reputation, we get excited and want to put them in place really fast. But here we learn the principle that they first must be tested and let then let them serve. Now, there's two reasons in the sermon for this. They could be separate lessons, but I thought I'd just throw everything into one lesson together. Remember... Why would we do this? Number one, sins are often easily hidden at first, and it takes time for them to be revealed. One's true character takes time to be revealed. Anyone can put on a good show up front right away. So, so we have to give time to see if there's anything faulty, because once they're in place, it's hard to move, get them out. Number two, 
We are responsible. The people who have appointed that person is responsible even when that person falls. So again, the person who's doing the appointing is held responsible for the person who's been appointed. And that is something that as a leader, you do not want to be part of. You don't want to stand before the risen Lord. And he says, uh, the church fell apart, but you're, <laughs> you're responsible in part for how that went down. That's not a conversation you want to have with God. Hopefully this has sparked some, some interest in terms of dialogue.